Hey, we're in the book of Mark for the year. The overall theme of the gospel of Mark is, who is Jesus? But what we're going to do is to go through chapters 14 through 16 first. And as we go through these chapters, this is what we're going to look at. We're going to see a group of people who surrounded Jesus. They saw the same Jesus, but they reacted differently. They responded differently. And my hypothesis is this. It's the same Jesus, but the reason why they saw Jesus differently, it's not because Jesus portrayed himself differently, but because people had different filters or lens in which they saw Jesus. And so the first, uh, and so we're going to call this little mini-series, Who Am I? Because what we're saying is we each have a filter or lens in which we view Jesus, and and that, that prohibits us from seeing Jesus fully. Our passage for today is Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. If you have not opened your passage yet, your Bible yet, or fired up your app, Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. And we're going to look at the first person and how she saw Jesus. And I'm going to show the passage on the screen. And what we're going to do is look not only at Mark, but look at the parallel passage in John Uh, Matthew, Mark, and John all recount the same story. There's a similar story in Luke, but I want you to listen. Luke is actually talking about a different incident. Matthew, Mark, and John are talking about the same incident. So don't don't be confused, all right? So we're going to look at uh, Mark and John's accounting of this particular incident. And there there are no discrepancies, really just a a different vantage point or different details by the two different authors. And this is what we're going to do. I'm going to read Mark. And on the right is, uh, in yellow, John's account, and you're going to read John. Does that make sense? All right. And so let me read Mark, and you're going to read John. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table six days before the Passover, A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, 
wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Lord Jesus, we come before you and your words. Uh, may the Holy Spirit illuminate these words. May we open our hearts. May we not this, uh, see this just as an intellectual exercise or a routine or uh, uh, something that we do to relieve our guilt, but a way in which we're allowing uh, ourselves to meet with you this morning. We thank you. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to look at the story in four parts. Gathering of the many, worship of the one, criticism of the many, and insight of the one. So obviously there's a contrast between what the majority are doing and what the one is doing. This is the context in Mark, in Mark chapter 14, verse 1. We are told, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. So in the life of Jesus, this was like toward the last week of uh, the life of Jesus. Uh, there's a, a formal plan now by the religious authorities to capture Jesus and execute him. They thought that he was a great danger to their authority. This was uh, after Jesus came into Jerusalem, so it was after Palm Sunday and before Good Friday. Okay? So you kind of get the, the, the mood of what is going on. In chapter 14, verse 3, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leopard as he was declining at the table... The city was Bethany. It was like the suburb of Jerusalem. And the house belonged to Simon the leper. We're not told too much about him after that. It was just this home. But it was in Bethany. And we know that uh, one of the other groups of people who lived in Bethany were people in this room also. Uh, was Lazarus. He was the one famous for being raised from the dead. His sister uh, Martha and another sister Mary. And this particular um, group of siblings, adult siblings, they had a really close friendship with Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, if you remember the story of Martha and Mary, Jesus visits Martha in her home, and Martha is really busy serving them, and she's bothered because Mary is just sitting there, not helping. And she saw Martha is so agitated, she gets kind of agitated at Jesus. Jesus, why aren't you telling my sister to help? In another story in John chapter 11, Martha and Mary called Jesus to come and heal their brother Lazarus, who is mortally ill. Jesus takes his time, and so Lazarus dies. Jesus goes to the tomb, and he calls Lazarus, and he rises from the dead, and Lazarus becomes like a mini-celebrity. Uh, people are fascinated because he really had a, a death-to-life experience. He became a threat to the religious Authorities, because they, they knew that he had risen from the dead. Martha, uh, in that room, was one who was busy serving. Lazarus probably had the greatest testimony of anyone alive, actually. Included uh, with these three were the disciples, uh, three, uh, 12 who followed Jesus for about three years. And included with the 12 is Peter. He's the one who said, you are the Son of God, the Christ, and Jesus said, upon this rock I will build the church. But he was also the one who said to Jesus when Jesus talked about his impending death, no, no, don't do that. Also, there were James and John. And Peter, James, and John are often seen as like those three in the inner circle. 
James and John were arguing about the fact that they should be on the right and left hand of Jesus and, and the other disciples were mad at them for doing so. And then there was Judas. We will find out that he was really a false disciple. Um, he was a treasurer and no, you know, the, the, the doesn't always correspond, but he used to uh, embezzle money. Uh, he probably justified it in his mind with management fee. I should get paid for this, that type of thing. But in this room, uh, probably at least a minimum of 16 adults, uh, like a large cell group, was a, the gathering of the people who were closest to Jesus at this time. They were uh, those who should have known Jesus and who would have had the closest, uh, most unhindered view of Jesus. Uh, they come in various sizes and, and shapes and experiences and perspective. You know, it, it's interesting when you have a cell group, a gathering of people who uh, supposedly gather for a common purpose, that each person comes with their own set of stories, their expectations of their wants and desires. Uh, they come and their participation often is clouded by what lens that they wear. In the midst of this crowd is the worship of one. A woman, it says in verse 3, an unnamed woman that John tells us is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She comes in with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Um, it's about a pound. And it is a, an ointment of pure nard. So it is concentrate. It, it would be something that you can dilute later uh, for common use. We're told that it is of about 300 denarii in value. Okay, so one denarii is about a one day's wage. Uh, so 300 denarii means it's about a one year's worth of income. So the average salary in the United States this year is $56,516. So in today's equivalent, this flask that Mary came in with would have been valued at about $50,000. It's a hefty, hefty sum. Most commentators believe that Mary wasn't necessarily wealthy, but it was a family heirloom, meaning her parents or her grandparents passed it down to her like an inheritance. You, know, you can do something with this. Uh, it was imported from India, and later on, you can sell a little bit of it, dilute it with water, and sell it. It's, it's worth $50,000. You can live a whole year off of it. What Mary does with this flask of perfume is alarming. She doesn't uncork it. What she does is she breaks the neck of the flask, meaning I'm going to use all of it now. She begins to pour it on the head of Jesus, but not only the head. She starts at the head, and I, I want you to imagine how uh, the people are seated. It, they're not seating at di uh, seated on chairs at a dining room table, but it's an Asian culture type of thing. So they had uh, like a low table, like an Asian table. I don't know if you grew up with Korean tables. We did, and we used to sit like squatted. 
Uh, and what was different in this particular culture is that they, don't, they didn't sit squat, but they sat leaning. And so they're kind of half lying down. And so not only the head, but the feet was protruded. And so Mary not only broke the uh, flask and started pouring it on Jesus' head, but it, it came all the way down to the feet. I mean, she, she had to empty a pound of perf concentrated perfume. Not only did she pour it on his feet, she started wiping the excess with her long flowing hair. To say that what she did was unusual would be an understatement. Some would say it was extravagant. Others would say it is unnecessary. But the thing that we can all agree on is this. There was no one else doing it. It was just her by herself. Others were busy dining with Jesus. Others were busy serving Jesus. Others were busy thinking about what I can get from Jesus. But she was the only one breaking and pouring. Why did Mary do this? I think the, the simple, like the simple, most basic explanation is this. That when, you, when we value a relationship, when we think of someone highly, we do stupid things for that person. Do we not? Friday was what? Valentine's. And a lot of you brought vegetation to your spouse. It had absolutely... Absolutely no utility value, right? In fact, it has sharp, dangerous thorns. But you, do, you did so. Um, why? Not because it did something for you. And in fact, uh, roses are designs not so that the wife or the girlfriend can take, uh, and can take it and do something useful you, with it. You don't, like on Valentine's Day, say, hey, honey, look, I bought you a new skillet, right? <laughs> look, you can cook breakfast for me, right? <laughs> but you do it, and the wife, the, the girlfriend receives it thinking, thank you. I know this has no utility value to it, but you gave it to me simply because you wanted to kind of waste it on me, Right? Some years ago, some really smart people, uh, the De Beers, brainwashed the whole culture uh, to believe that a diamond is a girl's best friend, right? It's fascinating. Dogs are a man's best friend, but a diamond is a girl's best friend. And it can't be just any diamond. It has to be clear, carrot, and certificate, and whatever, right? And, and the De Beers, uh, somewhere along the line, dictated that it has to be two or three months worth of a man's salary. It's a great, great marketing scheme. A diamond, even a, a clear diamond, as opposed to one that is less clear, uh, has no more utility value to it. But a man gives that to a, 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 a girl and say, will you marry me? And she receives it thinking, well, I know we're not going to resell it. It's not an investment, but you're doing it. 
You're, you're wasting it on me. Right? Why didn't Mary do what she did? And, and I believe the partial answer is because she wanted to waste it on one whom she loved, one whom she cherished and valued. Uh, oftentimes, in a real, a, a practical, pragmatic culture and a group like Living Hope, we rarely pour out our equivalent to a dozen roses or a diamond ring to, to our God. We rarely waste worship that we think, what can I get out of it, or my children or others around me. But she alone does what she does, and the criticism, what happens is understandable. Verse 4, and it's interesting, some of these people who were in the room, and uh, John says it was Judas, but it was evidently not just Judas because he wasn't the only one talking. They were talking to each other, and it was kind of rude. Uh, the disciples weren't talking to her, but they were talking about her in front of her. You know, that's like the worst, right? And they said, uh, why was this ointment wasted like that? And they were talking to themselves indignantly. Synonyms for indignant is they were offended, insulted. The word is used when James and John had asked, can we sit at the right and the left? And the rest of the disciples were at that time indignant. So when the two said, well, you know, we want privileged. <laughs> I can't believe you. Mary pours out her gift. <laughs> I can't believe you. In the same kind of disgust. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. The, the word, um, the, the, the metaphor, the graphic language um, in Greek it, it visually is to flare the nostrils in anger. They were like, oh, I can't believe you did that. John's account reveals that Judas was one of the ones who were speaking, but we find out it wasn't because of his altruistic reasons, but he wanted to embezzle some of the money. But there was a collective kind of criticism, judgment against what Mary had done. And I can really kind of understand, actually. Um, you know, there was a kind of a financial irresponsibility in what she did. And there was also a bit of a social irresponsibility, inappropriateness in what she did. Let me kind of explain what I mean. Imagine we have a Friday night um, service on Good Friday. You know, it's a solemn kind of a, a day for the church. And at Living Hope, we pack out the place downstairs and upstairs, and we dim the lights, and we serve communion. Um, it's supposed to be a solemn time when we think of the death of Jesus Christ. And one of our sisters from the church, and everyone kind of knows her, and she's known as the person who, uh, when we're having worship, she's the one intently listening to the sermon and taking notes. She's the one who, um, when the, the, the band is leading us in worship, she's the one who's really worshiping. She's also the one who's like, people are like, how come she's not serving more at the kitchen and with the kids' ministry? 
this lady walks in, and we've all kind of heard that she um, inherited something really valuable from her parents. This bottle of old perfume appraised at $50,000. Remarkable. We just only heard about it on Good Friday. She walks in, and we can kind of tell, oh, that's, that's it. Oh, my gosh. And we're kind of wondering what she's going to do with it. Perhaps what she'll do is um, donate it to the church. Because if she donates it to the church, she can get a tax write-off. And um, we could, with that money, hire a full-time staff for a year. Uh, build another church in Honduras. For $50,000, we can sponsor 110 kids for a whole year through Compassion. Or uh, all eyes are on her, and what she does, she walks up to the front, she breaks the neck of the bottle, there's shards of glass all around. I'm just horrified. Security, please, someone, <laughs> clean up, facilities team. And then she begins to pour it on the cross. And I, I, I would have been petrified. Sure, that the room now smelt nice. But beyond that, what I would have thought was, what a fiscally irresponsible thing that she just did. Would you not? Furthermore, what if, what if, it, what if she didn't do that? But what if she did this? For Good Friday, we asked the guest speaker to come and, you know, Tim Keller, for some reason, decided that he would accept our speaking engagement. So he's in the living room, the green room, like that. And it's like a holy of holies right now because Tim Keller's in the room. Like everyone's kind of peeking, oh, he's here. You know, after Jesus, it's like Tim Keller, right? So this lady walks in with this heirloom, 50K worth, and, um, and she doesn't come in here, but she goes into the green, or, green room where it's in the pastors and like all kind of like all nervous, Tim, um, Dr. Keller, your majesty, you know. <laughs> and he's sitting there um, in the sofa. He's, he's kind of tired, long flight from New York. He's kind of old, right? And what this gal does, she breaks the neck of her perfume, pours it on Tim Keller's head, his bald head, right? On his body and on his feet. And, and she has long hair. And she starts to wipe Tim Keller's feet with her hair. Let me ask you, who thinks that's okay? <laughs> right? In this Me Too era... How horrible is it that a woman would do that? Listen, as the senior pastor of this church, I not only would be indignant, but I would put a stop to it. I, I would actually physically, <laughs> like, like hey, have her. And if Tim Keller doesn't stop it, I would get mad at Tim Keller for doing what he did, for allowing that. What she does is not only physically but socially inappropriate. 
And so the response of the disciples, I think, is perfectly understandable. I think it is normal, and I think it's commendable in some ways. But I would contend with you this. Why is it that what we believe was normal and what the disciples uh, saw and how they reacted um, is different from what Mary did? And, and we'll find out why Jesus thinks what Mary did was actually appropriate. And what I'm going to contend with you, and this is my hypothesis, is this, that the disciples and Mary saw the same Jesus, but they saw him through a different lens. And that lens in which they saw Jesus caused the disciples to act one way and Mary to act a different way. And when we oftentimes see Jesus, we, we react according to the lens that we have on. We may not think we do, but we do. Let me give you an example. There's a picture that I want to show you. Okay, I want you to look at it. I want you to look carefully at it. You know, sometimes you have those little things that if you stare at it and you look beyond the horizon, you can kind of see an image, right? Have you seen those? Okay, so keep staring at it, see if you can see it. This is not one of those types of images, so <laughs> you can keep staring at it, and there's not a 3D image that's going to come out. It's just a random set of gray, black, and Less grade dots, right? We can look at something and not see anything because we have a filter on. Let me show you. Let me, let's show the next picture. Okay. Think of a number. What number do you think of? Nine, right? Um, the difference between the two pictures that you just saw is this. Um, this picture now has some green hues, right? Now, if you look at the same picture with, like, green-tinted glasses, you couldn't make out the number nine. You would just see grays. When we see Jesus through the lens through a certain filter, we don't see Jesus for who he is. The disciples were looking at Jesus as like a Tim Keller, as a Billy Graham. And what Mary did, as far as they were concerned, was indignant. But Mary saw something more. Jesus speaks. Leave her alone, he says in verse 6. Why, you, why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. I, I like the word that he uses, beautiful. Not appropriate, not pragmatic, but beautiful. And he says something in verse 7. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. And Jesus doesn't discount the idea that... Uh, that we should be giving to the poor. We should be building up the church in Honduras and sponsoring kids and things of that nature. But he says something interesting. You will not always have me. 
he says that there's a uniqueness about my presence here. That what she's doing is appropriate and beautiful because of who I am. Right? Is it appropriate for someone to blow a year's worth of wage, let down the hair and wipe the feet of this person? Is it appropriate if, it is, if this person is Billy, um, Billy Graham-esque or Tim Keller-esque or Pope-esque or Mother Teresa-esque? You can have the greatest moral most brilliant, uh, most prophetic voice in our room, but those shows of affection would not be appropriate, would it not? But it would be appropriate if it's the Son of God in our midst. If we realize that sitting here, dining with us, is God, yes, of course it's appropriate. But furthermore, here's the insight. Here's the further insight. Not only is what Mary did appropriate because it was to Jesus, who was the Son of God, but he says this, but you will not always have me. And furthermore, he says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. You see, not only has Jesus been with them for three years, but this is the last week of his life. And he will shortly be taken, uh, go through an unfair trial, tortured, and nailed upon the cross. In that particular culture, you prepare a body for burial by anointing the body with perfume, with ointment. And what Jesus is saying is this, that Mary has preemptively prepared my body for burial. And because of this, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It's appropriate, especially because God will shortly die. Die for the sins of all mankind, including hers. And she had this family, family heirloom, her, her inheritance, the thing that she's supposed to live off uh, later in life. At this moment in time, is it appropriate for her to break the neck and pour it upon the body of Jesus? If, if we're preparing the death of God for the sins of all mankind, is it appropriate? We would say, of course it is. You know what I think made Mary unique is this. I want you to think about the person of Mary. The disciples listened to the teachings of Jesus quite a bit, right? And they're the ones who, after all, wrote some of the Gospels or told others to, to write it. In Mark 10, in fact, um, he says to the disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. That Jesus had been saying to the disciples, I'm going to die. And it's interesting, the disciples often argue with Jesus. And when they come to uh, arrest him, remember what Peter does? He takes out a sword and begins to fight. 
like, I need to protect Jesus. But Jesus has been saying, no, I'm gonna, this has to happen. Do you know what the difference between the, the disciples and Mary? Remember when at the dinner, Martha was serving, what was Mary doing? She was sitting and listening. I think what distinguished Mary was this. Others were busy serving. Others were busy jockeying. Others are busy kind of figuring out, you know, what they're going to do. But Mary was the only one who was really listening. One commentator said that she appears to be the first person to perceive that the gospel is realized only in suffering. You know, we often see Jesus from the lens of what we want him to be, not who he claims to be, what he is. So we have no problems coming to Jesus with our pains and saying, Lord Jesus, would you sympathize with my weakness and my pain? And that is correct. But we do not allow Jesus to rebuke us for our sins in our pains sometimes. We don't think that's allowed. We just want Jesus to be our sympathizer. We come to Jesus and say, and we bear, we lift up the burden of parenting and saying, Lord Jesus, would you protect my child from this R-rated society? Or would you help my child uh, in school and their future? And that's good. But we do not allow God to speak into their lives if it's going to uh, lower their SAT score or the possibility of getting into a better college. We ask Jesus, Lord, would you make me a patient person? But we don't want Jesus to put us in situations that will force us to become patient. You see? We have a picture of what Jesus should be. We have a, a green-tinted lens in which we see him. And the problem is, when we do so, we don't see a full picture of who Jesus is. We don't see the, the grand vision of who Jesus is, who sees who Jesus exists, not only for our comfort, but for the forgiveness of our sins. Was Mary's gift unreasonable, irresponsible, um, wasteful, done by someone who was carried away by the moment? And, and yes, a lot of people can say that, but if we understood that the person sitting in our midst was not simply a good moral rabbi or even the most brilliant prophet or a resurrected John or Elijah, but so much more, if we understood that, that the person sitting in our midst, Jesus, was none other than God in flesh appearing, and this Jesus would be forcefully taken, taken through a false trial torture and nailed to a cross so that he can die for the sins of all mankind? If that was true, I would say that what she did was reasonable and what the others did was unreasonable. How could they simply sit there? How can they not fall on their knees in worship? How can they not say thank you for what you were about to do on the cross? 
let me give what I have to you.